Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Unjustly. Happy 2021. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, I'm Stephanie, and this is my co-host, Sandy. Hey, guys. It has been a while since we recorded, but it was really nice to spend time relaxing and enjoying the holidays with Tim and Hercules. But I do have to admit that the hardest part of the holidays being over is seeing all my Christmas decorations go back into storage. Oh, so sad. No, it's like seriously so sad. Um, nothing makes me happier than twinkle lights, Christmas music and movies and cold winter nights. Yeah, my that's, husband would agree with you. That's like my favorite part it's of these last couple months. Putting it all away. No, it's so sad. Like I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to replace all my Christmas decorations with. I don't have like spring decorations. Uh, Mardi Gras. So in New Orleans, they keep their Christmas tree up. Until and, Mardi Gras? Until Mardi Gras. And so they take out the Christmas decorations and they replace it with all the Mardi Gras decorations. On the tree? On the tree. Yeah. So January, February, they continue to have their Christmas trees up. It's just different decorations. And so everything's like purple, yellow, and green. And Gabe's been wanting to do it in our house forever. So I think this year we're... We're doing Mardi Gras in our house. <laughs> I can I can get behind that. I typically leave it until like the second week of January mm. because we'll do like um, Reyes Magos mm-hmm. on the 6th mm-hmm. and then I get lazy and then I just leave it up. And then I'm like, okay, we're like halfway through January. I really need to get this stuff put away. So I don't know. I started really early. I usually start like November, but yeah. I started a little before that. I'm not going to lie. Just because <laughs> we needed it. Yeah. 2020 yeah. was really crazy. The end of the year was really crazy. And so Christmas just made me really happy. Yeah. So I am really sad to see everything um, put away. But here we are. Now I have to um, just find new things to put up around the house. Send us um, any information that you guys have on things that Steph can do. To bring some cheer to her house again. For- it's technically not spring yet. So like no, when spring not. comes, like we can put up like spring stuff, yeah. flowers and It's just everything. this in between for it's you. It's a weird in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We might have to have Mardi Gras here too. Anyways, in uh, trying to decide what story to tell today, I stumbled upon a list of international miscarriages of justice. One of the stories I read was that of the murder of Australian socialite Gillian McPherson Brewer and the wrongful conviction of Daryl Beamish, but in learning more about the case, I stumbled into yet another wrongful conviction of John Button and the murder of his girlfriend, Rosemary Anderson. The two cases alone were incredibly interesting, but they became even more interesting when I realized how the two men, Beamish and Button, had their convictions overturned. So, the following is that story. So these stories are connected. These are all connected Ooh, in a web. That's exciting. It's really crazy. Jillian McPherson Brewer was killed in her Cottesloe flat by an intruder. Miss Brewer was the great-granddaughter of industrialist and philanthropist Sir McPherson Robertson, who founded McRobertson's Chocolates and an airline and whose bequest started the McRobertson's Girls High School in 1934. She had been struck on the head and body with a tomahawk and stabbed repeatedly with scissors on December 20th, 1959. Oh, that's man, brutal, that's right? Brutal. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, Jillian lived alone with her poodle in a flat that adjoined to her mother's on the ground floor of her street. She had spent the evening with her fiance, Dinny, who had left at midnight the night of her murder. The windows of her bedroom were open, but had wire screens on both of them. Both windows had curtains, but they did not overlap. So there was a gap from which someone walking down the street could peer into her room. Okay. 
Um, Jillian and Denny had made plans for Denny to return the following morning at 9 a.m. And when he arrived, the front door was closed and locked. So he let himself in with his key. So everything up until that point seemed Mm -hmm. pretty normal to him. As he walked towards her bedroom, he noticed that her door was shut. And as he opened the door, he saw Jillian lying on her back, her face covered in blood. She had three head wounds, extensive bruising on her neck, a severe wound to her throat, and a large lacerated wound that had penetrated deep into and fractured her pubic bone. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? Poor thing. The wounds were all consistent with having been caused by a small tomahawk hatchet that was found nearby. Jillian had also been stabbed in her chest and abdomen, inside her thighs, and on her butt. The stab wounds had seemingly been caused by a small dressmaking scissors, which were found on a tray in the living room. Although Jillian and Denny had had sex the night before, a pathological examination of swabs taken from her body had not produced any evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. Isn't that kind of strange? Yeah. Maybe it was just like the technology back then isn't what it is today, but they did have sex, but none of the results showed that there was any... Mm -hmm. Well, anything. maybe it showed that there wasn't any trauma. No, they couldn't find anything, even his. So I guess we can't really know for sure whether or not she was yeah. sexually assaulted. But as Either far way, as the testing goes, there was nothing. Yeah. Nothing. It, it sounds showed. like it was a, a very violent, angry yeah. act anyway. There was no sign of forcible entry and no foreign fingerprints had been found at the scene of the crime. Nothing was found. Do we know if they did a good investigation? Is this a faulty investigation? No, not necessarily. And I'll, so later on, we'll learn a little bit more about the crime okay, and the perpetrator. But I think that the perpetrator just knew how to mm. clean up a crime scene. Mm-hmm. So I won't say more. Okay. But Daryl Beamish, he was deaf and mute, was only 18 in 1959 when the 22-year-old socialite had been brutally murdered nearby. Police happened to be familiar with Daryl Beamish because he had previously been arrested and charged with aggravated assault of four girls each of whom were four or five at the time of the assault. The assault had taken place over a period of about five months, and in each case, he had taken the child to a nearby park, removed part of her clothing, and sexually assaulted her. He Mm. pled guilty to all of the charges and was detained in custody until sentencing. From what I understand and what Mm -hmm. I gathered, Mm -hmm. he was in police custody when this crime took place. Oh, okay. So... Shortly after, Beamish was taken to Miss Brewer's flat along with an interpreter who was there to assist with the translation. He denied knowing anything about the murder, but later confessed. According to a Perth detective, 18-year-old Beamish had provided four confessions, two through a sign language interpreter, one written confession, and another in notes that were scrawled on the exercise yard at the Perth lockup he had been held in. Beamish, however, claimed that the confessions had been obtained through coercion, intimidation, and threats, and that all were untrue. At the trial, he continued to profess his innocence and stated that he had been threatened by the police and that answers had been suggested to him by the police when in questioning. During cross-examination, his previous offenses were all brought to light. He was asked about the assaults on the girl, and although highly prejudicial, the jury was told that the killer of Brewer must surely have been a sexually perverted person and therefore had to be Beamish. Which, don't get me wrong, you shouldn't be molesting and assaulting mm-hmm. little girls, mm-hmm. but that doesn't always mean that just because there happens to be someone in the area who's doing this, they're suddenly yeah, they a had murderer, to have done it. right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, He was only 20 years old when he was condemned to death, but his sentence was later commuted to life in prison. 
Beamish appealed to the Court of Criminal Appeal on the grounds that the trial judge's directions were in error and that his confession had been involuntary and therefore should not have been admissible in court. The appeal was denied on October 20th of 1961, and he spent 15 years behind bars. But before we talk about how he was eventually freed, let's get into the murder of Rosemary Anderson. All right. Murder number two. Murder number two. John Button was celebrating his 19th birthday by having dinner at his parents' Perth suburban home with his then 17-year-old girlfriend, Rosemary Anderson. What a name. (laughs) Rosemary Anderson. That's just such a cute name. It had been a pleasant night up until he and Rosemary had a little tiff and she stormed out and started walking home. John jumped into his car, a 1962 French-designed Simca Aronde. I have no clue what that is. I have no clue if I pronounced it right. And followed her as he tried convincing her to get in the car. Rosemary, however, was determined to continue walking and eventually disappeared under a train track subway. And let me just be clear. Mm -hmm. Like, I get it. If... I'm in an argument with Tim and I am determined (laughs) to just like walk away or like I don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. I can totally see how at 17 years old, this girl was just like invincible. Yeah. Nothing's going to happen to me. I'm just going to keep walking even though it's the dead of night and there's like this scary like subway Mm -hmm. bridge thing that I have to go under. But John knew that on the other side was a deserted industrial strip and he assumed that the darkness and loneliness would make her change her mind and return towards his car. So... He lit a cigarette and waited. Oh, man. But he only waited about four minutes when he realized that she had not turned around yet. And so he started driving through the tracks, but spotted her lying in the sand several meters ahead. And she appeared to be fatally injured. All it took was four minutes. Four minutes. Oh, no. Four minutes. Can you even imagine? Like, four minutes passes Mm -hmm. by so quick. Like, I could just be sitting there scrolling on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And then I drive and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, this person is now dead? Like, how did this even happen? Imagine if he would have just gone, not blaming him or anything, but had the he guilt. just... Yeah. 100%. Thinking that there was a crazed hit-and-run driver at large, he carried her bleeding body to his car and rushed her to a nearby doctor. The doctor called an ambulance and the police, and when the cops arrived, they noticed damage to the left front corner of Button's car. He explained that he had been in a minor accident when he ran into the back of a car three weeks prior, but had not had a chance to fix the damage. Oh, no. The police wrote a report, but noted the damage to the car was suspicious. After all, he was the boyfriend. They had just had an argument. Mm -hmm. He found her at the scene. There had been damage to the car, and they had found blood on the car, which only made the damage appear even more suspicious. And to make matters worse for Button... He had a stutter, which police took as nervousness at the questions he was being asked. Oh, what no. a storm! Right? From he had no chance. He had absolutely no chance. He's a 19-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. After being in police custody for about five hours and learning that his girlfriend had died in the hospital, Button signed a confession that had been typed out by a detective. He recalls his time on death row, stating that all his cell contained was a mattress on the floor and a toilet bucket. He was locked up 23 hours a day and was only let out to see his lawyers and parents, and he spent three months in these conditions until his trial began. After a week-long trial, the jury retired to consider their verdict. After reaching a decision, they filed back into court, and the foreman was asked if they had found him guilty or not guilty, to which he replied, not guilty. Button recalls looking at the door to the courtroom and wondering if he should just jump out of the dock and run towards it, but he decided to wait until the judge officially set him free. As the court clerk asked if that was the decision of the entire jury, the foreman called out, 
I'm sorry, Your Honor. We find him guilty. <gasps> they said it wrong. They said it wrong. No. I know. He remembers looking over oh at his lawyer, God. like hoping he would say something or do something. But of course, nothing happened. And he was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to 10 years hard labor. That is the worst. That's like <laughs> it's when like this, Steve like, Harvey messed up the... Yes. <laughs> the, like Miss America yes. or like whatever yeah. pageant. Yes. <laughs> but 10 but times like a hundred times worse. Oh, this is God. someone's life. Had Button been convicted of willful murder as originally charged, he could have been hanged. Although his confession was the only evidence they had against him, it had been enough to convict him. In 1965, the parole system gave Button a five-year minimum, and he was let out of prison after serving only five years. Oh, okay. Which is great. Five out of ten. But still, he didn't do it, so not so great. (laughs) Over the next 33 years, he dedicated his life to proving his innocence. Enter Estelle Blackburn, an Australian journalist who ended up playing a very crucial role in the fight to prove the innocence of both Beamish and Button. So she's kind of like a badass in this whole story. And really the reason why these both of these cases were brought back to light, why these two men really are out and free. John Button's brother met Blackburn at a dance in November of 1991 by pure coincidence. He told her that he believed his older brother had been framed for a murder that had actually been committed by Eric Edgar Cook. Although Blackburn was skeptical of Button's brother, she decided to meet with John. After her meeting and after reading the appeal books that he had kept from his previous court cases, Blackburn decided that his case would be a good topic for a book, and so she began digging into the life of serial killer Eric Edgar Cook, nicknamed the Nightcaller and later the Nedlands Monster. So, a little bit about Eric Edgar Cook. Cook was born in a suburb of Perth in 1931 and was the eldest of three children. He was born into an unhappy and violent family, and it was said that his parents had only married because his mother, Christine, had gotten pregnant with him. Isn't that so sad to know? Yeah. You know, his father, Vivian Cook, was an alcoholic who often beat both him and his mother. He had been born with a cleft lip and palate, which he had had an operation for when he was only three months and then later when he was three years old, but the operations were not totally successful, and he was left with a slight facial deformity and a bit of a mumble when he spoke. These handicaps made him target for bullying at school, which made him ashamed and emotionally unstable at a young age due to the beatings he was receiving due to the bullying. Oh, man. I mean, it's so already like you're starting off. Chance. Yeah. So bad. Although he had been very good at subjects that required retentive memory and manual dexterity, he was expelled from school for stealing money from a teacher's purse at the early age of six. And sadly, the bullying continued all the way through technical school. So basically from like preschool mm-hmm. all the way through like his high entire school. Yeah. education career. He was being bullied. Mm-hmm. He was also in and out of orphanage and foster homes as he found himself roaming the streets at night in an attempt to escape his father's violence. Cook was frequently hospitalized for head injuries. Ding, ding, ding. Mm. Exactly. That's a common. Mm-hmm. And it was suspected that he had brain damage because of his accident proneness. He's also just very accident prone. So it's like all this, all the beatings he's getting, but also he's just kind of clumsy. He also suffered from recurrent headaches and was once admitted to an asylum. He reportedly experienced blackouts, which later stopped after he had an operation in 1949. Do we know there's a percentage done of serial killers who have had head injuries? I don't know the percentage, but it's one of those kind of like trifecta things where like most serial killers have had head injuries, Mm -hmm. have done this, have done that, like that's, that's one, one of, of the them. big ones yeah. yeah 
At 17, Cook spent his nights committing petty crimes and vandalism, and he would later serve 18 months in jail for burning down a church after he was rejected from a choir audition. Oh, no. Yes. <gasps> He's just trying. He, he wanted to be in the choir, and they didn't let him in. Just so let him be. He burned it down. Burn it to the ground. Let him into the choir. Not funny. He just wanted <laughs> <laughs> But God dang it. He just Someone wanted to sing. him. Huh? I wonder if things would have turned out differently had he had been accepted. I mean, listen, he was committing petty crimes and vandalism. It just so happened that on the side, he also was just like, I kind of want to be in the choir. Let me just try this out. I don't know that much would have changed. But I mean, he was so hurt that he burned the church. Yeah. Anyways, during his later teenage years, Cook would sneak into houses and steal whatever he found valuable. But these crimes would later escalate to damaging clothes and furniture and acts of vengeance. I mean, he was out to get you. Wow. Like, don't do him wrong. Mm -hmm. He would cut out newspaper accounts of his crimes to impress his acquaintances in, a t in an attempt to gain friends. So he it didn't, was like he didn't he was, know how to socialize. He, he didn't either. know how to socialize. He thought like maybe if I do these things and I'm in the newspaper, He'll get some attention. I can get some attention. Someone will think I'm cool and I'll have friends. Mm -hmm. He didn't know what to, I, clearly he didn't know what to do. And that's common with kids that have um, bad family home life. They seek attention in a negative way because that's really all they know. Mm -hmm. At Cook's grandmother's house on March 12, 1949. Police finally caught up with a young vandal, finding evidence at his house. His fingerprints were then matched to those found in other open cases, and at the age of 18, in 1949, Cook was sentenced to three years in prison after being arrested for arson and vandalism. He was convicted on two charges of stealing, seven of breaking and entering, and four of arson. In most of his crimes, he left many fingerprints and easy clues for detectives, which would teach him to be more careful in his future crimes. Oh, great. Exactly. So by the time it escalated mm -hmm. to him actually committing murders, mm -hmm. he, he had already knew. learned from his past mistakes. It was a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. At age 21, Cook joined the Australian Army, but was discharged three months later after it had been discovered that he had a juvenile record. But in the months before his discharge, so three months, mm -hmm. he had been quickly promoted to Lance Corporal and was taught how to handle firearms. No. Yes. Did they not do a good enough background check? Apparently because, not. I mean, here, but I know we just, can't compare countries, but here they do a very thorough background check before they can even be accepted. I mean, so I don't know anything about like what the background check looks like in Australia and how much of a deep dive they do, but they obviously, they missed that part. But I do think it's interesting to note that he was only in the army for three months and in those three months was quickly promoted yeah. or climbed the ranks. Mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever you say. Um, and somewhere I had read that he had a photographic memory. So clearly he was like intelligent. He obviously wasn't maybe like book smart, mm -hmm. but there was something there. I mean, he learned about the fingerprints. He yeah. learned how to not leave DNA behind. And so I don't know. I just I think it's interesting that there's a little bit more to him. Yeah. At 22, he married Sarah Lavin and had a large family, ultimately having four boys and three girls. A family, however, could not keep Cook from his ways, and he began stealing cars at night. Also, I read that this was in the time when, like, people didn't lock their doors, didn't leave, you know, so it was very mm -hmm. easy for him. And in September of 1955, after having crashed a car and needing hospitalization, he was sentenced to two years hard labor 
and was released just before Christmas the following year. So he spent about a year in prison. You'd think that he'd learned from his lesson, but the only lesson he seemed to have learned during the year he spent in prison was to wear women's gloves while committing his crimes to avoid leaving fingerprints, which had led to his prior arrest. So again, he just keeps getting smarter. Mm -hmm. Cook's four-year killing spree began on Australia Day, January 26 of 1963. The public was horrified when a series of shootings began happening in and around the suburbs of Perth in the dead of the night. They appeared to be random attacks, mainly taking place at residential homes, and no one knew who was behind these killings or why. Initially taking aim at a terrified couple in a parked car, they were injured with bullet wounds to the neck and hand. Next, Brian Weir was shot in the head as he lay sleeping with his front door left unlocked. Seriously injured, Mr. Weir barely survived. Doorbells were rung and doors were knocked, awakening unsuspecting occupants who were then shot at point-blank range when they opened their doors. The shootings continued throughout the night with a total of five people being shot and three being killed. Oh, no. An evening of terror which earned this killer the nickname of the Nightcaller. Over the next few months, his random killings continued while police urged the public to be vigilant and to lock their doors at night. Eric Edgar Cook's victims included Julian McPherson, Brian Weir, John Sturkey, George Walmsley, Shirley Martha McLeod, Constance Lisi Madrill, Patricia Vinico Berkman, and Rosemary Anderson. His crimes were opportunistic and used varied methods. Moreover, his victims shared no obvious common traits, making predicting where he would strike next and against who almost an impossible task. That's the worst when it's so randomized. It's so random, and so that's why when... Jillian and Rosemary were killed. Mm-hmm. There was, was just, no connection. It, there was no connection. It yeah. was so hard to make that connection. Cook did not keep the same modus operandi across his killing period. He used different weapons and different attacks, sometimes shooting his victims, sometimes stabbing. He killed inside houses and out in the open, facts which made it harder for police to link the murders to one individual. Cook was caught when a rifle was found in a bush, and a ballistic test proved that the gun was used to murder Shirley McLeod. Police returned to the location and tied the now unloaded rifle to a bush with fishing line. Police then waited for the owner to collect it, which Cook did two weeks later. When he was captured, he confessed to numerous crimes, including 22 violent crimes, 8 murders, and 14 attempted murders. So they literally tied it to a bush and had someone just stake out the bush until someone came back two (laughs) weeks later to take it. And they were like, well, clearly you're the one that did it. Yeah. Yeah. Good for them. I know. I mean, it's so silly because it's almost like a movie or like a cartoon where you would see that, but like it worked. In his confessions, he demonstrated an exceptionally good memory for the details of his crimes, regardless of how long ago he had committed them. For example, he confessed to more than 250 burglaries and was able to detail what he took, including the number of coins and the denominations of all the small change he had stolen. Oh, there's that photographic memory coming into play. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. The other murder confessions included those of Jillian McPherson Brewer and Rosemary Anderson, for which Beamish and Button had already been convicted and imprisoned. In fact, his confessions were referred to in appeals by both Beamish and Button. In fact, his confessions were referred to in appeals by both Beamish and Button. Although Cook was giving details that only the killer would know, little credence was given to his testimony. Chief Justice Sir Albert Wolfe called Cook a villainous, unscrupulous liar and the prosecution claimed that both confessions had only been made in an attempt to prolong his own trial he was convicted of willful murder uh, in november of 1963 after a three-day trial by jury he was sentenced to death and despite having grounds to appeal he ordered his lawyers not to apply claiming that he had killed and deserved to pay for what he had done 
Just 10 minutes before his sentence was carried out, Cook swore on the Bible that he had been the killer of both Jillian and Rosemary. So well, he continued to plead, like... Yeah, good for him for at least guilt. taking some accountability. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's all you can do. But yes, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he was out there and like, yes, it was me. Did he know that there was two people that were in prison for some of his murders? I think by this point he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, like I said, I, a lot of people just thought that he was lying because... Yeah. So many of his crimes had been so awful that they kind of almost didn't believe that it could get even worse. Um, and then, like I said, a lot of people thought he was doing it just so that he wouldn't have to see yeah. death as soon. But he wanted, he, it sounded like he didn't even want appeals done. No, he didn't want anything. He was just like, I did. So he like, wasn't I prolonging didn't. it. No. He's fine. But they thought that. Okay. I mean, well, you have to go through like the actual the trial and then you can appeal. So maybe mm-hmm. they were just like not sure whether or not he would do it. A key discovery in Blackburn's investigation was that Cook had been a multiple method killer. His offenses showed a significant deviation from the pattern generally accepted as the orthodox serial killer template, which holds that such killers target the same type of victim in the same way, impelled by the same underlying motive. Cook, for deferring reasons, used various methods, killed or attempted to kill persons of both sexes and of a widespread of ages and social circumstances. Once she was granted access to police archives, she discovered that the police had not emphasized this behavior pattern of Cook in the public statements and made no public announcement that Cook had attacked seven other women in five hit and runs and five other women sleeping in their beds. So similar, similar ways, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And they hadn't really made that public or hadn't made it known to the public. I'm sure once the information about him got out, forensic psychologists had a field day. Oh, I'm sure. About learning about him. The Western Australian community at large and the legal advocates for Button and Beamish were unaware that Cook had attempted murder by vehicle impact. At the time of Button's trial for her willful murder, her death appeared to be an isolated event and his claim that he had coincidentally discovered her after the attack seemed implausible. Likewise, during Beamish's trial, the offense was not placed in the context of the series of assault that Cook had committed against other women asleep in their homes. So again, like just none, they didn't know this information. And Mm -hmm. so they were never able to present it at trial to like present reasonable doubt. Okay. The location and the interviewing of the other surviving victims of Cook's crimes and the creation of a detailed analysis of his life and criminal career was the narrative for her book, Broken Lives, which had a powerful impact on the public discourse about the Australian legal system. Her book also led to a renewed effort to clear both Beamish and Button. Blackburn continued her efforts to help Button and Beamish by assisting in the preparation of the appeal cases for the two men. She also acted as a media liaison for the defense team during the preparation for and hearing of the appeals. Finally, in 2002, after almost 40 years, what began in the late 50s and early 60s had finally come to an end. The conviction of John Button for manslaughter was quashed, and three years later, in 2005, Daryl Beamish's conviction for willful murder had also been quashed. Good. Yay! In an article from 2012, Button, who was 68 at the time, said he felt he had been failed by the police and judicial system in the 60s, and although he received $400,000 in compensation from the government when his conviction was quashed, he believes the state failed to properly compensate him for the trauma he endured. In 2009, Button wrote to the then-Attorney General requesting a review of his compensation after Andrew Mallard, who had been wrongfully convicted of murder, had been awarded $3 million for his miscarriage of justice. Stay tuned. I'm going to look into Andrew Mallard and see if it's like another really good story. Yeah. 
Of the money I received in 2002, there's only $12,000 left. Most of it has gone to my ongoing medical bills. Every week I see a psychologist because I suffer from severe depression and always will because of the depression. I've never been able to work full time. Mm. It's debilitating and it's a result of what happened to me, but it still feels like the government won't acknowledge its responsibility. Having to beg is further punishment, especially when I'm begging for something that should have been done automatically. Mm-hmm. Button said his financial loss over the almost 50 years since his imprisonment has equated to well over $4 million. Whoa. He also said, what my case proves is that being exonerated of a crime doesn't mean you ever get full justice, which is so true. It you is can true. never get those years back, whether no. it was five years, 10 years, how about 15 years, mm-hmm. like you're never going to get those years back. There's nothing comparable. Nothing. Mm-mm. I was literally talking to Tim last night and we just kind of realized Mm-hmm. That we will have been in quarantine for a year mm-hmm. in three months, mm-hmm. which is insane. It, th- this year was went by so slowly, yeah. but also so quickly because I feel like we, I feel like I remember quarant- when quarantine started and we were like, oh, it's just going to be like 30 days or yeah. whatever. And like, here we are in January, almost a year in. Mm-hmm. And like we're in the same situation as we were same situation. And I'm not year. I'm not complaining because I, I, I have a job. We have a job. We have a house that we would have probably not not been able to buy had it not been because of COVID. Really? Yeah. I mean, why? Well, just because interest rates were so low. It just yeah. was it happened prices to be a really of houses good. went up. Well, when we bought was kind of the perfect time Oof, because we bought right before prices started going really crazy. Mm hmm. Because of COVID, so many people were able to start buying, Mm -hmm. but there weren't that many houses on the market. So right after we bought this place, we were like looking into it. There was like nothing out there. Yeah. And And they were so expensive. Yeah. I'm not saying that, you know, I understand silver linings. I understand all of the like blessings that we have Mm -hmm. and still have. But a year went by so quickly. I can only imagine what 15 years in prison would feel like yeah it's so sad in 2011 beamish received a payment of four hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars from the government for his wrongful imprisonment which is great but was clouded by the fact that the attorney general in awarding beamish his compensation stated that there was a lack of conclusive evidence to suggest that there was serious misconduct by the prosecutors or police in his original conviction so it's sad like they're still just kind of like well here's your money but like i really don't think we did anything wrong right Hmm. which is really common yeah in the criminal justice system To learn more about Cook and the wrongful convictions of Beamish and Button, you can read Blackburn's book, Broken Lives. Blackburn's personal journey is also shared in The End of Innocence, which is a book in which she discusses how her 13-year quest for justice turned her life upside down. In the midst of helping expose a deep vein of injustice in the West Australian legal system, she herself came close to bankruptcy. So, I mean, she's just an author, but Mm -hmm. she's also an author who did all of this work to get these two men freed. Mm -hmm. And so that was a 13-year quest for herself. Like, can you imagine just like a deep dive? It's kind of like Michelle, right? McNamara. Oh, yes. She dedicated her life to that. She dedicated her life for 13 years to try and help these two men. It was hard to find organizations in Australia just because it's so different. A lot of the things I was kind of like finding were connected to the government. So it's not like, I don't know. It was really hard. It wasn't like nonprofits here. Mm -hmm. It was like it would take you to a government website and it's like, here are all these organizations. Okay. So I just, I wasn't sure, but I did end up finding one 
that was called Justice Reform Initiative, and it's an alliance of people from across the political spectrum who share longstanding professional experience or knowledge of the system and believe that there is an urgent need to reduce the number of people in Australian jails. The population of people in Australian jails has more than doubled over the recent decades, and they believe it's a critical time to examine and act on the evidence which shows that jails are failing us all. They seek to build collaborative working relationships with other advocates for change, while raising awareness about the evidence that shows unequivocally that the system is not working. One thing I really liked about Justice Reform Initiative is that they acknowledge and support the current and longstanding efforts of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to reduce the numbers of Indigenous people incarcerated in Australia, and importantly, the leadership role which Indigenous-led organizations such as Change the Record who continue to play on this issue. They also acknowledge the work of many other individuals and organizations seeking seeking change, such as those focused on the rate of imprisonment for women, people with mental health issues, and people with disabilities. To learn more about how to get involved or donate, you can visit justicereforminitiative.org.au. So today's Amplify Corner is Bully Zero. Bully Zero is Australia's leading bully prevention charity. In 2009, prior to forming Bully Zero, Ali Halleck's son, Alam, tragically fell victim to cyberbullying. Through the determination of not wanting the same fate for another child, Ali successfully lobbied the Victorian state government in erecting barriers along the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne, preventing hundreds of suicides as a result. That's amazing. Yeah. Because of this terrible tragedy, Ali and a small group of dedicated parents who had also experienced their own tragic loss worked tirelessly to set up the new organization with the belief that no parent should have to bury a child Mm -hmm. as a consequence of insidious behavior. And so they focus on like three main areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so education, they deliver a range of evidence-based education programs to young people, parents, teachers, and employees to help prevent bullying, advocacy. They advocate to governments and other key stakeholders for change to policy and legislation that play a part in reducing bullying. And they develop research on bullying and raise awareness of the issue and its impact amongst the Australian community. And then lastly, support. They provide evidence-based support information and advice to the Australian community on how they can stop any bullying they or their children may be experiencing, which I think is really nice and mm-hmm. connected to Yeah, it's a good program. Eric Edgar Cook. Right. Um to find out more about Bully Zero, you can visit bullyzero.org.au. And that is the crazy story of Daryl Beamish, mm-hmm. John Button, oh my gosh, and Eric Edgar Cook. The serial killer. The actual serial killer. What's his nickname again? What a web. The Nightcaller or the Netherlands Monster. Thanks, Australia. Thank you, Australia. I hope to do more because there's like more going on out there. Um, But this was really fun for me because Mm -hmm. usually, you know, I'm looking for stuff going on here in the Mm -hmm. States. And so having come across that list of all the international miscarriages Mm -hmm. of justice, I'm going to kind of deep dive into it and see what else I can find. Yeah. This was just kind of like, oh, whoa, this was like a really cool case. And then, oh, my God. There's this other story and then, whoa, there's yeah. this whole Twist. other element to it of this crazy guy. So Eric, um, Edgar Cook's story, not his story, but like his life and everything um, that he did is very interesting. So if you want to find out more about him, because mm-hmm. I only did like a kind of summary. Yeah. Um, I would definitely look into him. He's he's kind of like big, big time serial, serial killer. killer yeah. There. Kind of like our Ted Bundy or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also very interesting because he doesn't follow the standard, yes, you know, serial killer one. template. So it's very interesting to, to hear and like learn of the serial killers who don't have any pattern. Yeah. 
because they definitely they exist. Just, they exist and it's, you know, it's hard to catch them. And it's interesting to see another criminal justice system that's also flawed. I feel like yes. every country is going to have their flaws. Yeah. And although we, we do focus on ours mainly, I mean, we do have listeners from other countries as well. So I, I like that you touched based on. It's actually really funny because I read an article and like is obviously an Australian article and they said something about like, you know, Australia's legal system has its flaws and, you know, we need to change it. Um, You know, like they said something like our friends in America have been working on this for a really long time. And so they're like 10 steps ahead. Something like that about Mm -hmm. how like the American legal system was so much better. And I was like, Ooh, but aren't we? I hate to break it to you, Australia, because <laughs> we're bad too. We're not that great. <laughs> There's still so much work to be done. But yeah, it's definitely something that I think is new to mm-hmm. them. And that's something that they want to be working on. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to shed some light. Cool. And that was that. Thank you for that one. Thank you for taking us internationally because we're unable to travel right now. So we'll just travel with our stories. Vicariously through <laughs> these stories. So I hope you guys enjoyed excited to be back hoping 2020 brings us 2021 2021 brings us i don't know some change some, some joy change, change. some life back into us some normalcy yeah hopefully we, we start to get back to a mm-hmm. normal life but we're thankful for you guys continuously listening to us and supporting us thanks for letting us take two weeks off and not hating us for it we needed it we enjoyed it so hope you guys had a safe happy new year Don't forget to subscribe to this, rate and review. We appreciate it so much. Uh, Follow us on social media, Unjustly Podcast, and we will see you next week. See you next week. Bye, guys. Bye. And I think the part is hard of the holidays being over. Yeah. Did I say that wrong? Yeah. What did I say? I the knew it. Hardest said, part. No, the, the hardest part. The hardest part. I said that wrong. I knew it when I said it. I was like, wait, that didn't sound right. I wasn't sure if I heard that wrong, but then he made a face. So I was like, she I said it wrong. I felt it wrong. Uh, willful. Had he been convicted of willful. Oh my God. Willful. Willful. <sighs> had he been convicted of willful murder? Nope. Willful murder. Say that. Willful murder it sounds weird willful right? murder willful i think murder. willful in general is a word. weird word um so he's he was smart great it leave it in he's so cute <laughs> unscrupulous that's what he said i have to fucking say it <laughs> they're so eloquent i know here we are in december january january